All right, let's take our Bibles this morning or your bulletin and look in chapter 1 of the Gospel according to Luke. Our brother Theodore uh, jumped ahead to Luke chapter 3 and talked about the life and ministry of John the Baptist. I'm going to talk about the uh, birth of John the Baptist and uh, his father's words in respond, re response to that birth. What I really want to talk about is the uh, power of the gospel to transform skeptics into believers who praise God. Because we, we all need to be asking, is it possible that God can move not just non-believers, but those who are really skeptical of God's power, of God's existence, of his ability to save, can God redeem uh, skeptics. And I think we'll see as we look at the text that in some sense, uh, Zachariah, or some would say Zacharias, uh, John the Baptist's father, uh, was initially a skeptic who was brought to praise. We don't have time to look at the entire chapter, but if you know the birth narrative of Luke, you know that early on in chapter 1, the angel appears to Zacharias, and he tells him that he uh, and his wife are going to give birth to a child, and that child will be the one who prepares the way for the Lord, the Messiah. And Zacharias' response was, how can that be? We're old. We are childless. My wife has been barren for our entire marriage. How can that be? And the angel sort of says, well, you'll see, but until it happens, you're not going to talk. And so he was mute for the next nine months. And in the interim, in Luke chapter 1, the angel appears to Mary. Mary is the cousin of Elizabeth. And a couple months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel appears to Mary and tells her that you are going to bear a child without even knowing a man that the Spirit of God will come on you, and in you will be born one who is holy, who is the very Son of God. And she goes and visits her sister, her cousin Elizabeth, and together they share the joy of their pregnancies. The one is bearing the forerunner of the Messiah. The other is the Messiah uh, himself. The text doesn't tell us. I sort of th think that Mary did stay till the birth, but the text doesn't tell us that she did. But uh, when John is finally born and Zacharias sees this miracle before him, after he has him circumcised, making sure that he is committed to the covenant, that he will live uh, under the covenant that God made with Israel. After he is circumcised, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. 
and his mouth is changed from skepticism to praise. In some sense, I look at Zacharias and I say he was a biblical theologian that when he thinks about what is happening in the birth of his son and in the coming birth of Jesus Christ and he thinks through the flow of Old Testament revelation and Old Testament history he becomes a biblical theologian because he sees that there's continuity there's progression there's unity in the Old Testament and ultimately all of the streams of the Old Testament converge in the person and work of Jesus Christ and he is living to witness this he is a part of it because his son will be the one who prepares the way of the Lord listen to Zacharias as he is filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke 1 67 and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The world is full of skeptics. The other night we were talking to a man who was sharing us some of what was going on in his family. He's a Christian, raised his kids in church, teaching them the word of God. And his 18-year-old son comes to him one day. He's in college, but he's still living at home. And he says, Dad, please don't make me go to church anymore. I don't believe that stuff. I don't believe in God. I don't believe I ought to have to live my life by a book that who knows who wrote it. Please don't make me go to church anymore. Of course, a Christian dad is heartbroken. But all Christian dads realize, if their theology is right, that growing up as a Christian does not make you a Christian. That 
every child needs to come to their, their own confession of faith in Christ. And as we talked together that night, uh, I assured him, because as he talked with his son, you know, he tried his apologetics, you know, for the existence of God and, and uh, you know, the claims of Christ. And uh, as he talked to his son, he realized that his son had no arguments that he could say, well, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it and this is the evidence for why I don't believe what you've taught me all my life. He realized that his son really had no apologetic for his life. And the conclusion was, it was more than just an intellectual matter. That it was a deeply moral and spiritual matter with an 18-year-old college student who's being inundated with uh, challenges against Christianity, who's being influenced by other 18-year-olds who have this false sense of freedom to do whatever they want to do, to satisfy all of their desires and their pleasures and, and all of the sexual pressures that come upon an 18-year-old young man. And we pretty much realized that it was not a, a, an intellectual problem. And whatever uh, apologetics professors had, as weak as they are, because they're all lies, but as weak as they are, they become a, a rationale for me to be able to live the way that I want to live. Because most people in their right mind, if they hear about a savior who loved them so much, gave his life for them, rose again and offers them a free gift of eternal life, most rational people would want a savior, would want forgiveness. I mean, I know as an 18 year old drug addict, I did. I asked God to forgive me many times. I didn't want to go to hell. I wanted a savior. But I did not want a Lord. I did not want somebody telling me how to live my life. I would gladly take Jesus to get out of hell and have forgiveness. But I did not want Jesus to be my Lord. There's nothing wrong with honest and sincere skepticism. There's nothing wrong with having honest doubts. You know, is Christianity true? I mean, th that's a legitimate question that if you're honest and sincere, you search out the evidence, you read the word of God, you take the gospel of John, which was written specifically for that purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. There's nothing wrong with an honest, sincere doubt by which you pursue the evidence for that. We all have a problem with honest and sincere doubt. And that problem is our depraved nature. 
that all we like sheep have gone astray. And even the most powerful apologetic and evidence that comes to us to persuade us of the truth of Christianity will not quite bring us there until we come under the burden of our sin by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we are brought to humility and brought to repentance and are willing to surrender and say that Jesus Christ is not only Savior, he is Lord. Skeptics can be transformed. Not all are. We all know of Voltaire, the famous French skeptic who viciously attacked scripture. He even prophesied that 100 years after his death, the Bible would be gone. It would be forgotten. It would just be in antiquity, just an old rusty and dusty book on a bookshelf. That's what he predicted. And yet we're told that right after his death, or 200 years after his death, a copy, a first edition copy of Voltaire sold for 11 cents. And on the same day, a copy of a Greek manuscript, the Sinaiticus, Greek manuscript, sold for $500,000. And of course, more homes have a copy of the Bible than any of Voltaire's writings. Not all skeptics come to Christ, but all skeptics eventually are proven wrong because Christ is both Savior and Lord. Every period of history has its Voltaires, its Carl Sagan's, its Richard Dawkins, its Christopher Hitchens. It has its kids that grew up in Christianity that begin to question it. It has its college students and college professors who question the validity of Christianity. There are always skeptics, but God transforms skeptics. One of the books that I've liked to read on evangelism is called Contagious Christian. There's also one called Contagious Christianity. And Lee Strobel, who wrote that book, was a Chicago journalist, an atheist agnostic, who uh, began to question his own beliefs. One day he sat down and he wrote a book, by, read a book by Frank Morrison called Who Moved the Stone? Now, Frank Morrison was, had also been an atheistic journalist who actually set out to write a book to disprove all of the claims of Christianity. And as he did that, as he researched it, he became more and more convinced 
that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he did live a perfect life, that he died a death for sinners, that he rose again. And so he wrote another book defending Christianity. The first chapter of that book is called The Book That Never Was Written, explaining his journey. God does transform skeptics. He uses dramatic events in Zacharias's life, like the miraculous birth of John to a barren and aged uh, couple. For us, we have the miracle, the greatest apologetic that we have as Christians is Jesus. The ultimate is the resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus is our apologetic, virgin born, God in human flesh. How do you explain that? Living a perfect life. I mean, everybody, even the people that hate Jesus say he was a good man, even though I don't want to follow him. Lived a perfect life, willingly, suffered a violent, sacrificial death out of love for people who hate him and rose from the dead. The greatest apologetic for Christianity is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, you know, the Jews, they want a sign. They say, prove it to me. And the Greeks, they want wisdom. You know, give me some persuasive philosophical argument that will convince me. But Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew, he's the most powerful sign they could have. And to the Greek, he is the strongest philosophical wise argument. We preach Jesus Christ. Now I want to get to my message. How are skeptics transformed? And when they are transformed, what do they come to confess? What do they believe? When we look at Zacharias's words, there's two things I want us to see from our text this morning. That first of all, skeptics are transformed when God enables them to see that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we'll see that all of God's purposes are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what we hear from the mouth of Zacharias as the Spirit of God comes upon him and his mouth is filled with praise and all of that Old Testament teaching that he had been brought up with, it now crystallizes in his heart and his mind. And he says, now I see it was talking about Jesus Christ. And there's three streams that he looks at. He talks about the promise to Abraham, the promise to David. And then he talks about how all of the prophets of old pointed to this miraculous birth that is coming, that Jesus Christ the Messiah is coming. The promise to Abraham, he talks about uh, 
that God remembers his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He's looking at his son being born as the forerunner of the Messiah and Jesus coming to be born as the savior of Israel in the world. And he says, this is what God promised to Abraham 2,000 years ago. Now, if you're familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, you know there's essentially seven promises that God gives. He says, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all of the families of the earth will find blessing. And it's really that last promise that becomes the focal point of the Abrahamic covenant. That somehow in Abraham, in a seed, a descendant of Abraham, God will bring blessing to the entire world, to all the nations, all the families of the earth. Now you've heard me say this before as I read my Old Testament. To me, the first chapter of the Bible is, what's the first chapter of the Bible? Genesis 1? Yeah. yeah. I like to say it's Genesis 12. And that Genesis 1 through 11 are sort of the prologue to the story of the Bible. They set the foundation, the context for why God needs to call out of the pagan world one man and through that one man bring blessing, redemption, and restoration to all the families of the earth. Because the first 11 chapters are telling us how perfect the world was and how rotten it became. And it's all about the dissolution of God's creation, the rebellion, the, 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 the sin. Chapters 1 through 11, it's a sad, sad story. And as you read it, you begin to ask, well, how's this going to turn out? How will it all unravel? And we come to the beginning of the story. God calls a man out of the pagan world, Abraham, somewhere around 2000 BC. And he says, through you, I'm going to fix what sin has broken in this world. Through your seed, your descendant, I will do this. Of course, we know that that is precisely how... The New Testament writers understood that Abrahamic covenant. When we come to Galatians 3, we find Paul saying these words. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the nations, the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul says God preached the gospel in that seventh promise. That this promise is talking about Jesus coming and Jesus through his death and resurrection bringing together a lost and divided world in unity in the body of Christ and one day restoring a broken and fallen world. He sees the promise of Abraham leading to Christ. He sees the promise of David. It says in our text that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of our servant David. Now Abraham's about 2,000 years before Jesus. David is about 1,000 years before Jesus. But David is a descendant of Abraham. He's one of those, one of that seed of, of, of Abraham. But he's that particular descendant through whose family the Messiah will come because we know in 2 Samuel 7 that God made a covenant with David and he essentially said, you will have a dynasty, a kingdom that will never end. But we know his son Solomon died and Rehoboam died and all of the subsequent descendants of David died. But they still understood David is promised an eternal dynasty. One of the Psalms celebrates that, Psalm 89, where uh, Ethan the Ezraite says this. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In your heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And you might ask, well, where is that? Where is this descendant of David who rules forever and ever? When Peter got up to preach on the day of Pentecost... And he begins to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to know that this one that you crucified, that God raised from the dead, he has taken him and exalted him on high. And he has seated him on the throne of his father David. Because it was no earthly Jerusalem that was intended to have an eternal king sit on its throne. But the heavenly Jerusalem where the eternal king, the son of David, Jesus Christ, rules as the head of his church. Zacharias was a good biblical theologian. He says that God will bring this horn of salvation. Now I appreciate Joseph 
playing his horn. But he's not talking about a musical instrument, this horn of salvation. He's actually talking about a, a bull, you know, a, a bull with horns. That's how the figure is used in the Old Testament. It's a, it, it, it is a sign of power. It is a sign of destruction. Yeah, when God says to David at one point, I will make you, I will put horns on your head to defeat your enemies. He's not blowing a trumpet. It is a figure of this mighty bull crashing into and defeating all of his enemies. And this is the picture of the Messiah. He's not only a savior from sin, but he is a fierce bull with a horn of power who one day, Paul says, he will come back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. He will come with that sword from his mouth, those flaming eyes, that picture of him on that victorious horse. He will tread the winepress of, of, of blood. He is one who defeats first our enemies of sin and Satan and death. That's what Hebrews says that Jesus does in his first coming. He takes away sin. But in his second coming, he comes back to deliver from all that threatens, all that opposes, all that attacks. This is our horn of salvation. Again, I love how Zechariah sees. He affirms what Jesus will later say, that all of the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, the writings, it all points to me. It's all laying the foundation there so that you can understand who Jesus the Messiah is. He says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that the prophets, he said, were talking about Jesus Christ. Now, I know when we think of the prophets, we normally think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. But a Hebrew, a Jew would understand that the prophets were not just what they called the latter prophets because they would call Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. They called them the latter prophets. But when they read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the history of Israel, they were called the former prophets. And Zacharias is saying the prophets, when you read Samuel, when you read Kings, not only when you read Isaiah and when you read Micah and Zechariah, but when you read the Old Testament, all of them were pointing to this one who is going to be born, the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior of men. Zechariah is convinced as the Spirit of God comes upon him 
that God's promises are true, that they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You can depend upon the word of God. We know that what will yet happen in the future is going to happen the way God describes it. Even though we may debate our understanding of that, we know that whatever God is going to do, he'll do it. Nothing will stop it. And we know that because we have over 300 prophecies, prophecies of the Old Testament pointing to the first coming of Christ that, were, that took place so perfectly. Skeptics come to believe that all of God's promises are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Paul said, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But secondly, in the gospel we see all of the purposes of God displayed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let me just highlight a couple of them this morning. He talks about God showing us mercy. That God wants to show people mercy. And I love that he doesn't say God is merciful, though God is merciful. He chooses to use a verb which describes the performance of mercy. That it's something God does for people. He sees people in their need. He sees people in their tur turmoil. He sees people in their affliction. And he wants to reach down and relieve them and deliver them. He wants to show mercy so that you can experience mercy. Often throughout the Gospels, we will hear people crying out. It may be a sick person or blind or someone whose child has just died and they will see Jesus and cry out, have mercy on me. Because that's what God does. He shows mercy. When I confess my need of mercy, I am confessing that I have no right to forgiveness. I'm confessing that I am not good enough for forgiveness. I'm confessing that I am depending solely on the God who is merciful to show me mercy. I have mercy only because God cares. He shows mercy. Skeptics are transformed, not simply because their minds are persuaded of the truth about Jesus Christ. Skeptics are transformed like I was when I came under deep conviction of my sin, when it was a burden to me, when it had taken my joy, when I was in the misery of my sin, and I knew that I needed mercy. The mercy of God comes in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is why we pray for people and we wait for people. Like that father with his 18-year-old son who's, you know, says he's questioning but probably is just resisting the lordship of Christ. What do you do? 
You keep loving people. You keep being merciful to them. You keep praying for them because you believe that Jesus sent his spirit into the world to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then ultimately, even the most powerful people, the most successful people, ultimately everybody comes to a time of crisis and need in their life where their money, their health, their education, their friends cannot help them. And they realize they need mercy. And so we keep praying for people till they come to that place in their life where they confess their need of mercy. Zacharias says that another one of God's purposes is to deliver us so that we can serve him. I like the connection. It's not just God's saving us from our enemies of sin and death and Satan, but he's saving us for a purpose that we might serve him. And I find it interesting that Luke doesn't use the word that's most common for describing us as servants of Jesus Christ. He uses one that is less used. It's actually a word that we get our English word uh, liturgical from. Liturgeo is the Greek word. But we get our word liturgical from. And by liturgy, you know, everybody has a liturgy. It, it may be a, a well-defined one or loosely defined one. But liturgy is simply a prescribed form of worship. And in Christian liturgy, liturgy, you know, we have a liturgy at Grace Church. You have an outline of where we're going in the, in, in the bulletin. Uh, we're going to pray. We're, we're going to read scripture. We're, we're going to hear the word of God. We're going to sing praises. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Sometimes we'll do, we'll, we'll do baptism. But it's that... It's that enactment of the gospel in worship. That's what liturgy is. Now Luke says that the Messiah comes, that God saves us so that we might serve him. So that all of our life should be an enactment of the gospel as we worship God in all of life. Luke's not saying God saved you so you can go to church. Though he did save you so you could go to church. But to Luke it's broader than that. That the liturgy isn't just a Sunday morning liturgy. The liturgy uh, is, is one of life. It's a worship that encompasses everything we do. Where we are saying to God in all of life, thank you for saving me. So that your relationship with your spouse becomes an act of worship. And your work on the job becomes an act of worship. And the way you spend your money is an act of worship. So that all of life is the living out of the gospel before God in a life of worship. His purpose is to forgive us. As John would come and point people to Jesus Christ, his father says that he would give 
the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And I, I love the precision of the language. You have the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. It's not, not just a, an event, not just a declaration, but the experience, not, not just intellectual knowledge, but, but the experience of this knowledge. You know that you're saved because you enjoy forgiveness. But as we know with John, you don't enjoy forgiveness without repentance. And you don't experience repentance without understanding that Jesus Christ has, in his death, satisfied the debt that you owe to God so that God can forgive you. Again, the pattern in repentance, forgiveness, and then baptism, as many, as a couple of did last week, and we will do more, Lord willing, in... January. Karl Barth, who wasn't always the best theologian, but he said many things well. He said that all human activity, all human activity is a cry for forgiveness. He would say that even your singing this morning is a cry for forgiveness. Another theologian, Augsburger, explains what he meant by that. He says, since nothing we intend is ever faultless, and nothing we attempt is ever without error, and nothing we achieve is without some measure of finitude and fallibility, we are human, we are saved by forgiveness. There's nothing. Even as I preach, I preach as a sinner who needs forgiveness. All activity, human activity, is a cry saying, God, I need forgiveness. As David said, God, you have, not, you have not dealt with us after our sins. You've not rewarded us according to our iniquities. If, if you would mark iniquities, who would stand? Now, all of our life, we, we need Forgiveness, but we enjoy forgiveness. We have that experiential knowledge that in Christ we are forgiven. God knows the worst about us. He knows all of our failures and errors and limitations. But he forgives. And he comes to guide us, Zechariah says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I love the poetic language of this father as he thinks about the wonder of what God has done. That he takes me out of my darkness 
I'm sorry, I can't help but tell you again of my friend Sal. I've told you many times, but I'll tell you again. Because I think that his predicament is characteristic of so many people in the world. That this successful Italian man, in many people's minds, living on top of the world, when I sat with him to talk about his soul, he said, let me tell you how I look at my life. He said, my life is like sitting in a dark room. It is dark and I can't get out. And he said, every once in a while, I'll see a flash of light in this dark room and I'll get up to follow the light. I'll see a door, I'll see a window, but by the time I get there, it's gone. I'm locked in this dark room. And what a joy to be able to tell him that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall never, not ever, walk in darkness, but shall have light for life. And he became a believer that night. And all those flashes of light that he saw at times moving toward a door may have been conviction of the Spirit of God or it may have been all of the false uh, solutions to your predicament in life which ultimately still leave you in darkness. But he brings us out of darkness to guide our feet in the way of peace. Is that where you find yourself this morning? Peace? in your rebellion, your resistance to the Lordship of Christ. You've got all this unsettledness in your heart and unsettledness in your mind and this unhappiness in life. Jesus says, I've come to take you out of darkness and to put you on a path which if you stay on it and follow me, it's a path of, of peace. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment this morning? I have a little prayer I'd like for you to pray with me. Here it is. Father, I believe your word. I see that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But more than that, I see that I need mercy. I need to be delivered. I need forgiveness. I need light to guide me in the way of peace. And so today, I repent of my sin. And I surrender to Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. 
and I intend to live every day repenting and surrendering to Jesus Christ as Lord. Father, give us grace to do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.